Thanks, Mark. If you're not already there, let's turn back in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. <clears throat> I want to thank all of you who came yesterday to the Inn at Olentangy Trail. It's the assisted living facility here in Lewis Center that we visited for the first time yesterday. We've been trying to find creative ways to obey James chapter 1, verse 27, and uh, take care of orphans and widows, and so we've been focusing a lot recently on how we can um, do just that. So we've talked a lot about orphan care, both through adoption and foster care and other ways that we can as a church fund orphan care globally. And then also, as we obey the other part of that verse, which is caring for widows, one of the ways that we can do that tangibly is by being uh, with some of those kinds of ladies at an assisted living facility. And it tends to be more women than men. If you were there yesterday, you'd see that. There's not a lot of guys who make it into their 90s for some reason, probably because we eat too much fried chicken. But, but regardless, that we were able to minister to both yesterday, and a lot of our kids went and loved it. Um, my son, Sam, was beatboxing for a 90-year-old or so named Jerry. He was beatboxing Smooth Criminal. If you know Michael Jackson, uh, Jerry had never heard Smooth Criminal, nor do I think had he ever heard beatboxing, but Sam found a way to uh, try to minister to him yesterday in his own way. So what we're going to try to do on an ongoing basis, if we can, is maybe monthly go visit the Inadol and Tangy Trail and just get to know these residents and love on them. So appreciate everybody being involved, especially Amy for coordinating it. really appreciate it. Next week is our last Sunday of the year, obviously. And we always take the last Sunday of the year and just take some time to do some testimonies. It's kind of a real low-key day. We have such a young church with young families that everybody goes home, and obviously they already have, but I wouldn't be surprised that it's around the same next week. So the, the last Sunday of the year, we always take some time just to reflect on what God's done for us, what He's taught us, how He's shaped us. So if you'd like to participate in that and you know you're going to be here and you have something you'd like to share I'd like you to contact Mark Shooter directly. I'll send out an email about it, but Mark's going to be coordinating the service next week, and uh, you could let him know ahead of time. And then if anybody wants to, to speak spontaneously, that would be great too. So we're in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, and if you've been a Christian a long time or grown up in Christian circles, this passage is not unfamiliar to you at all. The difficult thing I have often found for me as I prepare familiar passages is I sort of have this notion that everybody just checks out whenever you hear a familiar passage. And it's hard for me, too, because we don't, we don't come with fresh eyes to a passage like this. We've read it so much, we, we kind of know what's coming, and we, we don't really, you know, get the import of it. We don't really get the, the, the striking nature of it anymore. Uh, to give you an illustration, my son Jack is eight, almost nine now, and he's kind of entering into that he-knows-it-all phase. And um, so, you know, sometimes when I'm speaking to him, he'll try to finish my sentences because he, he wants to say, yeah, Dad, I know. It's like his way of saying, you don't need to tell me. But he does need to listen because he's my kid. We approach the word like that sometimes, like, okay, God, I already know this. Let's just move on and let's get through this. The problem with that is we, we miss a lot. And it may well be that we've never read this through the right lens. And what struck me this week as I was studying through this passage is that grace is absolutely astounding. It's surprising. In fact, if we're not surprised by it, then either we don't get it or it's not grace. It's one of the two. Now, these verses in front of us today contain words of grace, and therefore, I want us, when we are finished, to have been surprised by seeing it afresh, seeing it 
newly. So the mission of God, which we've been talking about for the past month or so through the Old Testament, is this basic notion that God has been on mission since before the foundation of the world to rescue for Himself a people. In doing so, He receives great glory because He dispenses His grace upon them, His glorious grace, and they get joy. They get to enjoy Him for forever. So the mission of God is not an aberration that came about because of the fall. The very creation of the world was God's intention to be on mission. So the mission of God is not something that came because we messed everything up. God went on mission purposefully. He made the world like He did. He intended the world to be like this. This does not make God the author or the one responsible for sin. We have to be very careful. Yet, all at the same time, God is not surprised by sin, and He intended to remedy it. Therefore, the mission. So, the mission of God is a mission of grace, and it's a surprising mission. I think one of the problems for us as we consider this notion of grace is that we make up synonyms for it, or we see it as a synonym for something else. So you might think that grace is a synonym for kindness. We use grace as a synonym sometimes for elegance or for sympathy. Whitney and I lived in South Carolina for nearly a decade, and it was not uncommon if you were to have met a southern belle, an older southern lady, and generally, southern ladies of a certain generation are very proper and kind and genteel and have perfect manners. And it's not uncommon when you walk away from such a woman like that to say, that woman is full of grace. And what you mean is, she, she's gracious, she's kind, and she's elegant. And I don't know that we should go on this rampage as Christians to try to eradicate the, the usage of this word in our culture. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm merely saying that in some ways it's become kind of watered down. It's become diluted to the point that it doesn't mean a whole lot to us anymore. So whenever you meet somebody who's nice, you might say that they're gracious or they're full of grace. And that may, in fact, be the case, but it may well be that we've actually just taken the word and dumbed it down. And of course, I'm more concerned about the concept than I am the Word itself. I'm not, I'm not arguing for definitions here necessarily. What I'm concerned about is the concept behind the definitions. If you've been around church or Christianity long enough, you may have heard this definition of grace. It's unmerited favor. How many of you have heard that definition before? It's a pretty common definition. I think it gets to the heart of what grace is, that God gives us His kindness and we don't merit it, we don't earn it. But even that has become somewhat of a cliché. So if you had to define grace, what would you say? How would you define it? How would you articulate what grace really is? In fact, perhaps that's the wrong question. Perhaps rather than trying to define grace, we should, we should show grace. Now, by that, I do not necessarily mean that we ourselves should show grace, although I will argue for that in a bit but that we take people to the source of grace. And frankly, I think if we're really being honest, we cannot divorce grace from its source. That is to say, if we really want to show people what grace is, we have to show them God. The problem, of course, is that we, and 
really everybody else has an improper, deficient view of God. We've said it here many times, but there's an old saying that goes like this. In the beginning, God created man in His image, and ever since, man has been returning the favor. This is one of the reasons why most other religions have gods that are very capricious. You have to buy them off. They get angry with you, and you sacrifice so they're no longer angry with you. And ultimately, what happens in most other religions is that these gods take on sort of mutated human characteristics. In other words, what happens is we project our weaknesses and all of our warped longings onto our deities, because ultimately we see them through the lens of humanity. And of course, we as Christians tend to do this as well. If we had harsh fathers, we tend to see God sometimes as very harsh and distant and uncaring. If we have broken relationships that are very disappointing, it's not uncommon for us to be very disappointed in our relationships and to fear that they will unravel at any moment. So, very often the way that we view humanity or ourselves gets projected back onto God. And though God is the one who has given us grace and defines what grace really is, we make up new categories because we see it through the lens of what we like. And the problem then, of course, is that we never really understand grace because we've created gods in our own image, and we see it, of course, through our lens. And then we wonder why our human relational deficiencies abound. So it's really a vicious cycle. If I have broken, deficient, disappointing human relationships, I project those disappointing human relationships back on my deity, and then He takes on those characteristics. And then as I worship Him, then I become more like that because I I become like what I worship. And then round and round we go. And it, it sort of reciprocates to people and back to God, and it goes round and round in this vicious cycle. So, if I'm broken and you're broken, then I see God through that lens, and then if I worship a God like that, I become more like that, and, and then it's just this terrible cycle. And then, of course, we wonder why we're lonely, because if my human relationships leave me lonely, then God must somehow be some kind of distant deity that I have to, to appease by my behavior, and then He'll come close to me. And then, of course, if I'm worshiping something like that, then I become more and more distant in my human relationships. If I have to please my deity through my behavior, then I end up posturing in front of Him. I I end up kind of performing and pretending. And then I end up doing that with you. And then we're constantly posturing and performing in front of each other. Where does this leave us? It leaves us as blame shifters. It leaves us lonely. It leaves us empty, and it leaves us hopeless. And I think Matthew chapter 1 shouts to us today that all of that is a massive problem, but that God has done what is necessary to change all of that and to give us hope. So how do we break out of this vicious and exhausting cycle of posturing and blame shifting and loneliness and emptiness and hopelessness? How? Well, it's by seeing grace, not necessarily just defining it so you can pass a theology exam, but seeing it and tasting it and enjoying it. I'm going to give you two very simple things today to 
help us outline this passage very simply, and I hope it will reveal some of the beautiful, surprising nature of grace that lies behind this passage. First of all, in verses 18 through 20, I think that Matthew says to us in recording this ancient story that the grace of Jesus is not natural to us. Let's read together one more time, verses 18 through 20. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, to be clear here, it seems like Mary had not told Joseph what was going on. If you read in Luke chapters 1 and 2, you find another sort of parallel account of Jesus' birth. There, an angel visits Mary and tells her that she's going to conceive and have this Son of God who will save His people from, his, from their sins. But seemingly here, she had not told Joseph. You've noticed in verse 18, it said that she was found to be with child. So, seemingly, if we kind of read between the lines here, she hadn't come and told Joseph. Now, why is that? I'm convinced that she was convinced that she really had been visited by a real angel and that she really was going to be, um, you know, bearing the Son of God. I believe that she was convinced of that. But in this culture, at this time, this was a massive deal, which helps explain her secrecy even from her husband. And I'll explain more about the sort of cultural context of what they did with their marriage ceremonies back then. So she's, she's confident to whatever degree that God's going to do this for her. In fact, if you read in Luke chapter 1, there's this sort of poetic praise from Mary that we call the Magnificat, and she praises God for what He's going to do on her behalf and then bless her people. But you have to think that, that after that, after her mountaintop experience, she had to have had plenty of doubts. And here's Joseph. He's a just man. He's known in his community for being such a man. And she had to have wondered what he would have thought. I mean, he wasn't there when she was visited by the angel. He hadn't heard the angel's voice. All he now sees is that his betrothed wife, sort of in like this serious engagement, that she's pregnant now. And he knows he had not slept with her. So, so whose child is this? And of course, she knew that he would ask that question, and now that he finds her in this state, he is, I'm sure, angry. I'm sure he's confused. I'm sure he's probably ashamed. But you notice that he's not just a man who follows the law. We know here that he's a just man. In other words, he wants to keep all of the laws of Israel. But clearly here, he's more than just a just man. He is also a merciful man which leads us to believe that this man Joseph was a unique man in his day. He wasn't just a guy who kept all the rules. This man kept the rules for the right reasons. He understood that the law was given so that we would understand how to love God and how to love people. And clearly, Joseph cares about both here. He wants to honor God through his behavior, but he also wants to show mercy on those who make mistakes. Because, of course, at this point, 
all he can understand is that Mary somehow has made a massive mistake. And it's massive because in the Mosaic law, where all the laws are given for Israel, there was provision for such a woman like this to be stoned. Now, that didn't happen a lot by the time Joseph and Mary were around by the first century, but legally that could have been done. So, Joseph not only cares for her shame, he doesn't want to shame her, he also doesn't want her to be put in danger. So, all of this is very surprising. Now, for a little bit of cultural context. In our day, we meet somebody cute, hopefully cute, and you ask them out, and that can be like at lunch, or you know, you see them in like the cafeteria, or you work with them perhaps, or you know, some people meet online these days. And so people meet in all kinds of different ways. And then you go out on your first date, and you know, you put on your best sweater and your best shoes, and you go to a decent restaurant, and then you go see a movie or go to a show or go get coffee and talk or whatever. And and, and you hopefully, if it's the right match, you hit it off, and then you keep dating, and after a while, you fall in love, and, and then you, you know, the guy goes and buys a ring and you know, has the very dramatic story, and, and then you, know, you stay engaged for a little while because that's like amped up dating, and then after a while, you plan the wedding, and then you get married, okay? That's kind of how we do things in our culture. It wasn't like that back then. It was very different from that, actually. In fact, families would come together within a community, and they would say, okay, um, I've got a son, you've got a daughter, we kind of like each other, um, you know, she has good birthing hips, whatever, and he has a field, and so because he has a field and a donkey, and she looks like she can bear kids, let's put them together, and then they'll raise a bunch of grandkids for us and take care of us in our old age. It's kind of how it went, I'm being a little facetious, but it wasn't much different than that. And by the time they got to this point in their betrothal, they were legally considered to be married. And by that I mean, for them to break this betrothal, there had to actually be a written document that broke it. It was very similar to divorce in our day. But there was another stage. There was a stage where there was a huge ceremony, and you know, the guy who owned the field with the donkey would get all of his buddies together, and they'd you know, wear their best robes, and they'd go to her house and get her, and they'd pay some money to the dad, it was called a dowry, and then he would take her back to his home, and, and then they would become officially husband and wife physically and in every other kind of way. That had not yet happened yet for Mary and Joseph. But regardless, they are sort of considered married, at least in our terms today. So this is more than just two people dating, right? And Joseph's like, well, you've really disappointed me. I thought you were the one, but, eh, you know, I'll go find somebody else. No, they were legally considered to be betrothed or married to one another, which is why Joseph cares so much about how this process needs to go. So, what you find here in the very beginning of all of this is that Joseph's wanting to do the right thing to please his God by his behavior and to do the right thing for this woman that I think he frankly really loved. But something intervenes or someone intervenes. This angel comes during Joseph's sleep and speaks to him. Notice he calls him a son of David. We talked about this in our discussion of the mission of God over the past few weeks. As you look into the book of Ruth, for instance, which is where we were the first Sunday in December, we notice there that God surprisingly breaks into Ruth's story, this Gentile pagan, and through her marries her into the house of Bethlehem, 
and brings through her the great King David, through whom the great Messiah would come. In fact, if you look back at the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1, you see this lineage, this genealogy. To be a son of David is to be a son of the king, for God promised that He would bring the Messiah through David and rescue the world. And Joseph himself is of the house and lineage of David. The angel says, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. In other words, she has not been unfaithful to you. She has not done anything sinful. This has come from on high. So, think about this. If you were to to create a perfect scenario where a just and righteous deity might rescue humanity, how would you conceive of it? How would you create it? Well, there's probably all kinds of ideas we could come up with, but I think what we find is we understand the Bible holistically, which is what we discussed last week with these covenants, is that it really couldn't have happened any other way. As we learned last week, any Savior that would do us any good would have to come and obey all God's laws because we couldn't, yet we're required to do so. But anybody that's able to save us would also have to suffer in our place, which is why this man would come through human flesh or take on human flesh. This is God's way of redeeming the world. And though it is strange, and of course it is surprising, it is the only way. There was not another way. There had to be one who would come and take the place of the first Adam, the one who failed us miserably. Adam was required to keep God's law and therefore would be blessed for it, but he did not, and instead the whole race was plunged into sin. But if one could come and take on real human flesh and keep all of the laws, all the laws that Adam did not keep, and at the same time then suffer in our place, not for his own sins, but for ours, then we'd have a chance. So this whole conception is unnatural. And it reminds us that the grace of Jesus is not natural to us. It is weird. It is surprising. Frankly, it's shocking. Mary was shocked. Joseph was shocked, and as we read these words again today, if we can with fresh eyes, it should frankly shock us. Now, it makes sense if we understand theological categories, but ultimately, why would God do it this way? And by that I mean, why would He do it through these people? If you read the Old Testament, had Israel by and large been faithful? if you know anything about the history of the Old Testament, the answer is absolutely not. She had been anything but had the house of David, by and large, been faithful. If you know anything about the history of the house of David or David's lineage, the answer is no. David himself was a mess. David himself committed adultery. David himself murdered. And it was only one generation later in his son Solomon that the whole kingdom fell apart. 
Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines, or maybe it's the flip. He had a thousand of them. And then he began worshiping their gods. And then after Solomon, the whole kingdom was torn into. It was a disaster. In fact, if you ever run into a faithful king after Solomon, it's really, really surprising. And by the 8th century BC, the northern kingdom's gone into captivity. By the 6th century B.C., the southern kingdom's gone into captivity, and even though she returns, it's never to her former glory. Israel is a disaster. But God takes sinful people and uses them to, to be conduits of grace. In fact, you could go back to the first 17 verses of this chapter, which might be a little boring to most people, and see this thread of grace that runs throughout. The grace of Jesus is not natural to us. I think it's important for us to see some practical shape to this. And by that I mean, it should be that whenever we talk about this whole concept of defining grace and seeing synonyms for it, like kindness or graciousness or whatever, that, that this really gets to the heart of what I'm trying to say today. That is, if, if all you think about grace is that it's just being nice or that it's just being kind, then you've never been shocked by grace. You, you've never really understood it because it's not natural. This is why whenever people hurt you, whenever people do mean things to you, your tendency, our tendency, is to do what? It's retribution. Retribution. It's to lash out and return. Whenever anybody exacts a pound of flesh from you, to use a Shakespearean analogy, you want it back in return. If somebody harms you, you want to harm them in return. If somebody shortchanges you, you want to do the same in return. Grace is not natural. Judgment, justice is very natural for us, but not grace. But if you think about it, I don't think that we can say theologically, and this may be a little unsettling, but just hang with me for a minute. I don't think that we could say that if this child had really been the physical child of Joseph, that he somehow could not have come from the womb sinless and kept all of God's laws. And, and here's what I mean by that. I don't think the virgin birth was absolutely necessary for Jesus to be sinless. Now, that might bother you for a minute, but let me explain that. I think some people think that because the virgin birth took place the way that it did, that therefore somehow Jesus came out sinless because He wasn't the seed of Joseph. But He was, still came from Mary, right? I mean, Mary herself was sinful. This is one of the reasons why the Roman Catholic Church sort of backdates everything with Mary and says that she too was conceived sinlessly. So they, they see this problem theologically. As Protestants, we're a little fuzzy on this. So we might think to ourselves, well, the virgin birth was necessary so that there could be a sinless man. Now, I'll come back to that in just a moment. I don't think that's necessarily true because Mary herself was sinful. In other words, Jesus came out of sinful flesh. God could have done something miraculous in the conception of, between Joseph and Mary to make him sinless. He could have done that if he wanted to. Nevertheless, even though I don't think the virgin birth was necessary for Jesus to be a sinless man, I think it does help us clarify that He is a sinless man. In other words, though Jesus came through Mary 
as a sinful person. She was sinful. I think by God, the Holy Spirit, impregnating her with this little boy, it's showing that this boy comes from on high, and he's not like any other boy. And though God could have allowed Jesus to be conceived in some other kind of way, He wants Him to be conceived in a miraculous way, so that when He comes, it will be seen that this boy is like no other boy, that God has intervened here, and He's doing something new. I think that's the point. Now, I'm not saying that the virgin birth is not true. I believe it with all my heart. I'm just saying I don't think it was absolutely necessary, but it is God's way, and it is shocking and striking. And it does clarify for us what God's doing through the conception. And really what I'm saying here is that it's a holy invasion of grace. Grace invades this woman's body and, of course, invades the world through her. Grace is surprising, and it should be for us as well. This is why whenever you really experience the grace of God, you are surprised. This is why when God works in your life and you really see Him at work, you are surprised. It's shocking. And of course, this is why when people run into us and encounter us, that they should frankly be pretty surprised. Let me give you a couple examples. It should be that in our marriages that people should be surprised by the way that we act. We've said here many times that the people you love the most can hurt you the most. That's just reality. It may stink and you may not like it very much, but it is the way things work. Those you love the most can hurt you the most because what they say matters. And it's really easy in your marriage to get in this vicious cycle like we talked about a little while ago between us and people and us and God, to get in this vicious cycle with our spouse where we just go round and round. You hurt me, I hurt you. You bruise me, I bruise you. You, you, know, you do this, I do. I mean, this is the way it goes a lot of the time. But for a spouse who really understands grace, your responsibility is to shock them by doing the opposite. Frankly, I think we would all be much better off if we would often do the thing which is contrary to what we want to do. Here, find that. Like, you, you know that the feeling you have in your heart of justice and retribution is wrong, and yet it feels so delightful you do it anyway. If it's natural for us, then perhaps the best thing we can do a lot of times is to do the things we don't want to do. We'd probably a lot of times be a lot better off. What about with your kids? Especially as your kids get older and start talking back and think they do know it all, and they don't respect you like they like you feel like you should be respected, when they don't obey your rules the way you want to be obeyed, how do you extend grace to them in those moments? Grace is often the opposite of what they deserve, but isn't that what grace is? Did these two sinful parents deserve to be the ones who would bring Jesus into the world? Did Israel deserve to be the conduit of grace for the whole world? Did any of us deserve to be visited from on high by this holy invasion of grace? The answer, of course, is no, because that's the very nature of grace. It's surprising. It does the opposite of what we think it would. So the grace of Jesus is not natural to us, which is why as we read this text, we should be surprised. But, of course, very practically, we know it doesn't come naturally to us, so we need supernatural help to be able to extend it to other people. We'll come back to that at the end today. 
So the grace of Jesus is not natural to us. And then secondly, the grace of Jesus is transformative for us. The grace of Jesus is transformative for us. Look in verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So the grace of Jesus is not natural to us. Everything that happened to Mary and Joseph was not natural. But the grace of Jesus is transformative for us. So very simply, I think Jesus' names demonstrate this to us. He is to be called Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. For He, Jesus, will save His people from their sins. So Jesus' names remind Him and remind others around Him of His character and, of course, of His Father. So Jesus' Father, God Almighty, saves. But so does Jesus Himself. He was God Himself. He saves. And, of course, this is in keeping with Old Testament prophecy because one would come to be with us, which is what the word Emmanuel means God with us. And very literally, God visited the world by taking on flesh. He was with them. Back in Isaiah chapter 7, where that prophecy that you find here in Matthew 1.23 is given, it is given to the king called Ahaz. There is a prophecy given there that God's going to do something very surprising through a child to prove that He always keeps His word. He will bring judgment on the unfaithful and blessings and grace upon the faithful. There's some kind of immediate fulfillment in Ahaz's day. God keeps His word. He brings signs about to show that He keeps His word. But the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7 is found here in the coming of Jesus Christ, that God Himself takes on flesh, comes through the womb of a woman, obeys all the laws that God the Father has given dies in the place of those who deserve death so that they don't have to die and receive life. The grace of Jesus is transformative for us. His name show us this. So the one who would be with us will become the one who will save us. Notice here that He's not going to just offer Himself on behalf of His people and hope that they will come to Him. Notice in verse 21, it is said that He will save His people from their sins. I think sometimes we tend to see Jesus as this one who's like up in heaven, you know, begging for people to come to Him, and if they just will come, He'll be kind to them. He'll meet them halfway. But there's no, there's no halfway stuff going on here. God comes out of the blue and invades their reality. He puts a child into the womb of this probably pretty young teenager and shocks her and shocks the world. He invades their reality and says, it's time for me to dispense my grace. And it won't just be potential. That is to say, He's not just giving one who is kind, who will save if you will agree. He's one who comes and He definitely will save. He's not a helpless Savior. 
He's a powerful, providential Savior. And notice what Jesus really does here. And I think there's some irony here if you have eyes to see it. Jesus comes to bear their shame, to bear our shame. He took on the weakness and the limitations of human flesh, which from the perspective of heaven stood for failure and sinfulness. But He didn't stand above us like a phantom or a spirit or a warring angel. He came and He was a baby with all the limitations that came from that, with all the temptations that would come His way, with all the mockery and shame and all the pain that would come from the cross, particularly the separation from His Father, which He from all of eternity had enjoyed. He bore our shame and made it possible for us to be rescued from our sins. If you think about it, Mary bore His shame in a sense. There had to have been people who came along after His birth and called Him an illegitimate child, and yet she stood for Him. Notice what Joseph does. He obeys the angel after he wakes up, and he goes and he takes this woman. He bore her shame. Eventually, they would go back home to Nazareth, and people had to have talked behind their backs all their lives. There's that illegitimate child. There's that whore of a woman. Is that, is that child really Joseph's or is it another? Poor Joseph. If that's not really his kid, he was forced into this. Think about the things that were said about our Lord and about His parents. But ultimately, Mary, out of faith, was willing to bear the shame that came along with this by sinful people. Joseph was willing to bear her shame. And of course, all of this is possible because Jesus came to bear theirs. You see, the grace of Jesus is transformative for us because it comes and it takes care of all of our problems. Jesus, surprisingly and graciously, bears our shame. That's what sin does to us. Sin shames us before a holy and righteous God. This is why after you sin, even after you've been forgiven, you still feel shame. Need we feel that way? No, because shame doesn't make us more forgiven. We don't, we don't have to work our way up to God so He knows we're really, really sorry. The beauty of the grace of Jesus Christ is that it transforms us, it forgives us, and it takes away our shame. And I think whenever you get a hold of that, when you really grasp that, it changes everything about you. That means that whenever you sin and people confront you with your sin, that you need not be crushed. Now, you should be sorry. You should be upset. You should purpose not to do it again. But ultimately, Jesus has already borne your shame. You don't have to help bear it through contriving your emotions. This is why as you see other people sin, you can be gentle with them because Jesus has borne their shame too, and it's ultimately not your responsible to shame them further. That's grace. Some time ago, I went to a concert 
It's called the Behold the Lamb of God tour. Anybody familiar with this? No, okay. One of these days, we ought to get a lot of people from our church to go to it. There's a guy named Andrew Peterson, and he is a pretty well-known Christian contemporary artist, but he's not like most contemporary Christian artists. He's, um, you know, there's a lot of depth to a lot of the lyrics in his songs, and and uh, he's very theological, but, but his songs are really winsome and, and easy to listen to. And so, he tours during the year and sings a lot of his normal songs. At Christmas, he always puts on this tour called the Behold the Lamb of God Tour, and it's a way of talking about Advent and the beauty of redemption that comes during Advent. And he travels around with some of his musician friends during this tour, and they play some of their songs too. Um, so that's what the tour is. Um, so we were at this concert a couple of years ago, and there was a song that was sung called I Will Find a Way. And I've actually read at least some of this before, but I want to read it again today. The song is drawn from the writing of a man named Walter Wongeren, who was a Lutheran professor at Valparaiso in Indiana, evangelical, um, you know, very theologically rich and orthodox. And he wrote this short story. It's only about two pages long in a book. Um, and it's a creative and artistic way of talking about the scandal, the grittiness, the beauty, the surprise of Advent. This is a little bit long to read publicly, but I think it's really, really good. It's one of the most beautiful things I've ever read. So I'm going to read it to you now, and I think in some ways it will help capture what it is we see here in Matthew chapter 1. And then I encourage you to either go buy the book where you can find this short story or to listen to the song called I Will Find a Way. I could forward you a link to it. You can find it on YouTube if you want to sample it ahead of time. But listen to this short story, and I think it will depict this surprising nature of grace, which is not natural to us and which transforms us. I love a child, but she is afraid of me. I want to help this child so terribly in need of help for she is hungry. Her cheeks are sunken to the bone, but she knows little of food, less of nutrition. I know both these things. She is cold and she is dirty. She lives at the end of a tattered hallway, three flights up in a tenement, whose landlord long forgot the human bodies huddled in that place. But I know how to build a fire, and I know how to wash a face. She is retarded, if the truth be told, thick in her tongue, slow in her mind yet aware of her infirmity and embarrassed by it. But here am I, well-traveled throughout the universe and wise and willing to share my wisdom. She is lonely all the day long. She sits in a chair with her back to the door, her knees tucked tight against her breasts, her arms around these, her head down. And I can see how her hair hangs to her ankles, but I cannot see her face. She's hiding. If I could but see her face and kiss it, why, I could draw the loneliness out of her. She sings a sort of song to pass the time, a childish melody, though she is a woman in her body by its shape, a swelling at her belly. She sings, Puss, Puss. I know the truth that she is singing of no cat at all, but of her face sadly calling it ugly. And I know the truth that she is right, but I am mightily persuasive myself, and I could make it lovely by my love alone. I love the child, but she is afraid of me. Then how can I come to her to feed and to heal her by my love? Knock on the door? Enter the common way? No. She holds her breath at a gentle tap, pretending that she is not home. She feels unworthy of polite society, 
and loud, imperious banging would only send her into shivering tears, for police and bill collectors have troubled her in the past. And should I break down the door, or should I show my face at the window? Oh, what terrors I would cause then. These have happened before. She suffered the raping of kindless men, and therefore she hangs her head, and therefore she sings, Puss. I am none of these, to be sure. But if I came the way that they have come, she would not know me different. She would not receive my love, but might likely die of a failed heart. I've called from the hall. I've sung her name through the cracks in the plaster. But I have a bright trumpet of a voice, and she covers her ears and weeps. She thinks each word an accusation. I could, of course, ignore the doors and walls and windows, simply appearing before her as I am. I have that capability. But she hasn't the strength to see it and would die. She is, you see, her own deepest hiding place, and fear and death are the truest doors against me. Then what is left? How can I come to my beloved? Where is the entrance that will not frighten or kill her? By what door can love arrive after all, truly to nurture her, to take the loneliness away, to make her beautiful, as lovely as my moon at night, my sun come morning? I know what I'll do. I'll make the woman herself my door, and by her body enter her life. Ah, I like that. I like that. However could she be afraid of her own flesh, of something lowly underneath her ribs? I'll be the baby waking in her womb. Hush. She'll have the time this way to know my coming first before I come. Hush. Time to get ready, to touch her tummy, touching the promise alone, as it were. When she hangs her head, she shall be looking at me, thinking of me, looking at me while I gather in the deepest place of her being. It is an excellent plan. Hush. And then when I come, my voice shall be so dear to her. It shall call the tenderness out of her soul and loveliness into her face. When I take milk at her breast, she'll sigh and sing another song, a sweet magnificat, for she shall feel important then and worthy, seeing that another life depends on hers. My need shall make her rich. Then what of her loneliness? Gone. Gone in the bond between us, though I shall not have said a word yet. And for my sake she shall wash her face, for she shall have a reason then. And the sins that she suffered, the hurts at the hands of men shall be transfigured by my being. I make good come out of evil. I am the good come out of evil. I am her Lord who loves this woman. And for a while I'll let her mother me, but then I'll grow. And I will take my trumpet voice again, which once would kill her. And I'll take her too into my arms. And out of that little room, that filthy tenement, I'll bear my mother, my child, alive forever. I love a child but she will not fear me for long now. Look, look, it is almost happening. I am doing a new thing, and don't you perceive it? I am coming among you a baby, and my name shall be Emmanuel. If you have a hard time with art, Wengerin is saying that the world is like this, but he mixes his metaphors in talking about Mary. The world is broken. The world is like a filthy tenement. And as we close today, I want you to be reminded of what this world is like. It's broken. It's hurting. It's been abused. And, of course, we abuse. But God came in an inauspicious way. He invaded our reality by His grace. And the holy, ancient one came to us 
He came to this dirty tenement of a world through this poor young woman and brought to us the opportunity for life. Grace is surprising. Grace is not natural. But when the unnatural invades the natural, transformation comes. That's your hope, and that's my hope. So we should be different. It should be that as people encounter us, that we don't seem natural, not just because we're nice, not just because we're sympathetic, because grace is powerfully strange. So we should be a little unnatural. Our lives should be transformed and transforming and transformative. It should be that as people run into us, that things about them begin to change as well. So as we near Christmas Day, we are reminded of the invasion of grace that came because of God, our gracious Savior. Let us be thankful, let us be aware, and let us take this message, which alone is the hope of this awful and broken world, and bring them hope because of the invasion of surprising grace. We're going to pray, and in a few moments the kids will join us and we'll partake of the table together.